by downloading or listening to this podcast. You are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. Hello, and welcome to Moody's Talks Focus on Finance, our new podcast covering recent events and longer-term trends affecting the credit of banks, insurance companies, and asset managers. I'm your host, Danielle Reed, coming to you from New York. With economic recovery still tenuous on ongoing pandemic fears, banks around the world have taken substantial provisions anticipating increased loan losses. They also have much better solvency positions and are much more liquid than in 2007 ahead of the last global crisis-driven downturn. But naturally, there's a great deal of interest in banks' comparative ability to withstand a prolonged crisis and preserve capital. Joining me in New York is Michael Porta of the Financial Institutions Group, who will be diving into this question with the banking team. Michael, what's in store on bank credit strength? Hi, Danielle. Well, bank credit strength is definitely in the spotlight as first half results come out showing the initial impact of the pandemic. And because systemic risk is always on the radar in stressed operating environments when it comes to banks, there's particular interest right now in the largest, most systemically important institutions. So I'll be speaking with Peter Nerby and Michael Rohr of the banking team about some recent insight they have on the comparative credit strength of the global systemically important banks, or GSIBs and what makes for a stronger, more resilient bank business model. Thanks, Michael. I'm really looking forward to hearing about the largest global banks and how they're weathering this current crisis. But first, I'll be talking to Ceres Lisboa of the banking team in Sao Paulo, Brazil, about the effects of the coronavirus disruption on asset quality in banking systems across Latin America. Ceres, welcome to Focus on Finance. Thanks, Danielle. Glad to be here. Saris, Latin America has been somewhat of a hot spot in media coverage of the coronavirus, with cases having surged since the outset of the global health crisis in the region. The economies have undoubtedly been shaken by this, which has a significant impact on the operating environment for the banks you cover. Why has Latin America been hit so hard by the coronavirus crisis, and how has it manifested in different countries in the region? Well, in Latin America, many people have informal works, right? What means that if you can go to work, you don't have money at all. So in, under that context, containment measure is much more difficult to enforce and has sadly led to high contagion and fatality rates. And that could extend to a weakened uh, environment, increase in employment and corporate earnings. While there was a massive disruption in the first three months of the pandemic, there has not been a completely shutdown in most of the countries in the region, and positive signs of rebound has been sustained since May in most countries. But we still don't don't see growth recovering uh, to pre-pandemic levels, at least in the next two years in most of these countries. So overall, the growth prospects uh, are dim, speaking of the economies themselves. I believe you're more particularly worried about the quality of the bank loans, how likely they are to be paid in full and on time, which is the driver of what's called the asset quality of these banks. 
Yeah, asset quality uh, is looking very nice on paper, but the number itself, they don't, don't tell much, right? By asset quality, I mean the level of non-performing loans over gross loans or everything that is overdue for more than 90 days. In response to the crisis, banks granted relief packages to their customers in all these countries in order to avoid a sudden jump in these NPLs. Uh, with that, they had time to build up provisions, uh, which are in good levels, uh, in the first two quarters. At the same time, the government uh, relief measures to help uh, companies and individuals, and also reducing immediate provisioning requirements for loans that were renegotiated or deferred. Uh, these are only temporary. Um, emergency aid packages were also extended in Peru and Chile and, and Brazil for individuals helping consumption levels and benefiting, also benefiting, I think that's important, the savings of these people, which can be an important source of uh, mitigation when these actions are lifted. But these actions themselves might not be enough, right? Because uh, when they are they expire, it could be a different story for consumption, for corporate earnings, and also for borrowers' uh, repayment capacity. Okay, thank you. It seems then, uh, from what you're saying, that the governments are helping to keep asset quality looking good, at least on paper, by providing various kinds of aid. Uh, now, a little more on the asset quality question. You did some scenario analysis to test the ability of banks to absorb upcoming losses. What did you find in your analysis? We measured how banks are prepared to absorb the losses that can come from the loan deferrals. And we assumed loss given defaults or LGD from 10 to 60% of the loans that were renegotiated as a result of the pandemic. Brazilian banks uh, reserves, they seem to be pretty healthy, could be able to absorb significant increase in credit losses without you know, a material need to build additional provisions in the coming quarters. On the other hand, Chilean banks, they have only 3% of reserves and they might be more vulnerable even to a less uh, severe loss given default on those loans that were deferred. Beyond 10%, for instance, of losses on those loans that were extended, Chilean banks' uh, reserves would already be wiped out and that would affect their profitability and diminish the capital replenishment capacity of these banks. Colombia and Peru is different because they have a lot of reserves, but the level of loan deferrals were also very high, close to 40%, which could impact the capacity of these banks to absorb losses if needed. So it sounds like Brazilian banks are in pretty good shape to absorb higher credit losses, but Chilean banks, so the lower level of reserves, maybe not so much. And also Colombia and Peru's high level of loan deferrals could make it more difficult for those countries' banks to absorb loan losses. Yeah, that's right. We also need to keep in mind that uh, what can mitigate a little bit of these analysis or of these uh, losses that we are assuming here is the fact that these banking systems, they have different loan portfolio breakdowns. So by loan type or maturity or borrower concentration, those are the differences. And in Chile, for instance, they have a lot of mortgages, which is a low risk product. Uh, and mortgages, although they are, they were a lot of those mortgages were renegotiated in all those countries, the loss given default on those mortgages are, is lower. In Brazil, for instance, banks have grown in the past two years 
on SMEs or small and medium-sized companies, which is riskier, and not secured consumer lending. So the loan, the loss given default uh, can be higher than in Chile, where a lot of the mortgages are low risk. I see. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us here at Focus on Finance. Coming up, Michael Porta will be speaking with two analysts from the global banking team, Peter Nerby in New York and Michael Rohr in Frankfurt, about how the global systemically important banks entered the present period of pandemic-induced economic and operating environment stress in better shape than they were ahead of the last major downturn in 2007 to 2008. Michael, over to you. Thanks, Danielle. Welcome to Focus on Finance, Peter, Michael. Nice to be here, Michael. Thanks for having me. Sure. So the team recently published a note describing the 30 global systemically important banks, or GSIBs as they're commonly called. We describe them as having cleaner balance sheets, stronger capital, better liquidity than ahead of the last major downturn back in 2007-2008. We also said they're better set than a typical bank to bounce back from stress and rebuild capital from earnings. The two of you cover some of the most prominent GSIBs in the U.S. and Europe, so maybe we could begin just by describing for listeners briefly, what does the GSIB classification mean? Okay, sure. Uh, you can think of GSIBs as the oil in the global economic engine, and the GSIB capital surcharge arose after the global financial crisis when regulators recognized the risk to the real economy when a globally active financial institution fails. So to buttress the regulatory regime, they screened for a group of the biggest, most global, and most interconnected banks to create a separate GSIB capital surcharge, and it varies by the bank's systemic importance, and it ranges between one to three and a half percentage points currently. Okay, uh, that's very helpful. And you know, just to give a few examples for our listeners of who these banks are, you know, that would include the large global investment banks with capital markets ops in Europe, U.S., you know, JPM, Deutsche Bank for example, uh, also the Japan mega banks and the four largest uh, Chinese banks. So you know, aside from the enhanced capital requirements you mentioned, Peter, and you know, some restructuring of these institutions since the financial crisis, what would you say sets their credit strength and competitiveness apart from an average bank? Uh, right. Well, as, as you just noted, Michael, it really is a I would say it's a fairly eclectic group when you look at it at first. It's got universal banks, investment banks, wealth managers, and custodians, and they're spread across the Americas, Europe, and Asia. But they do share some underlying credit strengths, and they tend to possess three key attributes. First, they have an anchor franchise in a home or specialty market that produces reliable earnings and collects cheap, sticky deposits. Think of a credit agricole or a TD as an example. And second, they have supplemental businesses that diversify and stabilize their earnings, such as wealth management or asset servicing. So think about UBS or Boney as examples of that. And these first two strengths kind of reinforce a third strength, which is the ability of the bank to maintain a discerning risk appetite. And that can translate into lower or more predictable cost of risk over the cycle. So these are the three features that really drive their resiliency. So just to recap, it's not simply size that sets these GSIBs apart. Uh, they have an anchor franchise. Uh, they also have diversified revenue streams and a risk discipline uh, that's consistent. 
Michael, would you agree with that assessment? Um, yes, I would, Michael. Um, actually, the GSIPs follow varying business models for generating earnings, and ideally, uh, they follow a path of generating more stable and predictable earnings. Two examples would be coming out of Switzerland with UBS and Credit Suisse, uh, where obviously their business models are more geared into wealth management and private banking. And those businesses benefited from solid net new money inflows on rising global wealth, ultra low interest rates, and also solid capital markets. Clearly, the pandemic has cast a cloud over the prospects of these activities, but we believe that wealth will accumulate faster than global GDP once the pandemic subsides. At the same time, uh, ultra low interest rates will continue to raise margin pressure also as clients move into more passive forms of investing. Okay, so wealth management, a very good example of uh, diversified earnings. I believe you're going to add something there, Peter? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think the report points out in the, in the second half or the first half of 2020, you really see the benefits of, of this, these businesses in the results. Understood. So these are kind of qualitative aspects that we've been discussing. Maybe we could move to the quantitative and explain to me and listeners, how does this show up in the GSIB's financial results and credit metrics? Right. So what we did is we dug into and decomposed the returns on risk-weighted assets for the 30 GSIBs compared to other banks in their region over the past five years. And it's interesting that 24 of the 30 firms performed at or above their system averages over that time. And we think that the strength and stability of returns on RWA, as Michael was talking about, it's a, it's a good measure of what I call bondholder earnings quality, the stability aspect of it, and nicely captures the ability of these banks to generate organic capital, which is a core aspect of resilience. So what the report really talks about or allows bond investors to do is to compare GSIBs to themselves and to their regional peers. Okay. And, you know, I noticed in the report that, you know, we note there's a distinction in the profitability of, say, U.S. banks and European banks. I think what partly explains that is that the U.S. banks bounced back from the financial crisis a bit faster than the European banks did. Uh, they also benefited from rising interest rates up until at least the end of 2019. Uh, is there anything else that stands out that separates those two groups of banks from each other? Well, you know, if you look into the U.S. bank's earnings profile, the clear um, distinction is that their earnings also benefited from their world-leading capital markets activities and also improving asset quality up until just recently. Um, but we believe the benefits will be fading gradually, so the profitability gap between the U.S. and European banks may be narrowing. Uh, first of all, as we've seen during the first half, deteriorating asset risk has led to higher loan loss provisions on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, and secondly, as you mentioned, the rate environment has turned against US banks, which will eventually raise the pressure on profitability. European banks, however, will suffer a little less, we believe, since they have already adjusted their funding and asset pricing and hedged more against falling rates. It certainly looks like low rates are going to be the rule globally, clamping down on banks' interest income. But some of these banks also have sizable global capital markets activities. How are those going to fare during the pandemic, in your estimation? Well, uh, thus far, it has been one of the, uh, the real bright spots for these firms when you look at the first half 2020 results. Uh, 
And what you'd see is that most of these trading businesses have increased their focus on servicing customer flows because all the enhanced regulation has all but eliminated carry trades as a tool in the toolkit of an investment bank. But as we saw the pandemic grip markets, volumes, volatility, and demand for risk transfer all spiked. And therefore, the returns on providing liquidity grew and capital markets firms captured fat bid offer spreads. And this has just all resulted in a gusher of trading revenues so far in 2020, although capital markets earnings are notoriously difficult to predict. Okay. So they're they're doing pretty good in generating uh, some internal capital from earnings. What are they doing with it? You know, how have banks been distributing earnings and managing their capital since the onset of the pandemic? Yeah, um, you know, the 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 firms entered the pandemic with stronger capital buffers, and regulators are now very focused to ensure that these are maintained while trying to encourage the banks to lend to creditworthy customers. And really, this has resulted in a sharp scrutiny on shareholder distributions and European and U.S. regulators have reintroduced dividend and share buyback restrictions. This is helping preserve capital ratios in 2020, but we think will remain a source of tension between shareholders, banks and their regulators, since many banks are trading below book value. Got it. So, you know, on balance, the global investment banks are performing well and managing capital pretty prudently. Uh, looks like they've absorbed lessons from the last financial crisis. But bringing it back out to the larger GSIB peer group, uh, I think Danielle had a question on whether the recent Q2 results of these banks confirm our expectations about the GSIB's comparative performance under stress. I did. Thanks, Michael. Uh, in particular, I think our listeners would be curious how well these banks have absorbed the initial impact of COVID-19 compared with their past performance under stress. And what might this say about their longer-term credit strength and competitiveness? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there. I, may, I would just make a couple of observations. I'm sure Michael has some others. Um, you know, provisions have been high and definitely could turn into charge-offs in 2020 and 21, depending on the course of the virus and the economy. That's why maintaining this capital basis is important. But the businesses that we talked about earlier, the supplemental earning streams, They've been doing quite well, and as the report will show, there are quite a few GSIBs that actually grew pre-provision earnings in the first half of 2020. So I think the results are kind of speaking to the thesis in the report. And if I may just add, Peter, um, the solvency and liquidity metrics stabilized at most GSIBs during the first half of this year, although some of their balance sheets ballooned in the first quarter and then came back in the second quarter. Uh, as customers demanded less liquidity. But overall, the strength we enumerated for many GSIPs suggests that they can weather this storm better than the typical universal bank. Plenty to consider. Thank you, Peter and Michael both for joining. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us again in two weeks time on Wednesday, October 7th for the next episode of Focus on Finance.